The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
Caden started playing football for the first time this year, I like to tell him every time he leaves for practice or a game, boy, do not get a concussion or mom will kill us both. So that's kind of how all that's going. Now, Caden doesn't know really a thing about football. I mean, he and I have have played catch before, but six man is kind of a different animal. And I'm trying to figure out all the rules I, I don't really know how all that works. And, and, and so sometimes it's, it's important to realize that you don't know what you don't know, right? And, 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 and sometimes we find ourselves in, in, in this kind of catch where we think that we know all there is to know, but Caden didn't know anything. And so he's out there, they're telling him, telling him how, to, how to block, how, how, to, how to tackle, all of these things. And so the first game he goes in, and the guys are always bigger, closer to the quarterback. And this one guy thought he was going to throw Caden around. And Caden just kind of shrugged it off and ran through him and grabbed the guy and just dropped him. And, of course, you hear me on the video going, oh, my gosh, it's so good. I didn't actually say it like that. That would have been weird. Caden <laughs> comes off the field, smile ear to ear. Oh my goodness. And he comes off. And uh, as cool as that moment was, what happened next was even better than that. Um, I think the first person that met him coming off the field was Connor Rooney. And Connor hit his helmet and he hit his shoulder pads. He was like, bro, like, I don't know what he's telling him. And then all of a sudden he's like grabbing his jersey a little bit. And he's like coaching him a little bit. And Caden's like shaking his head, right? You don't know what you don't know. He's walking by a little bit uh, after that. Now, Ashton has been playing for a long time. Ashton is a baller athlete. Everything he does, just like his daddy. Ashton comes up to him, hits him on the helmet, and he's like, mm, yes. And he's telling him, okay, do this. And Caden's just eating it up, and he's shaking his head. They're all on the same team. And, and sometimes I, I wonder if, as Christians, we realize that we are all on the same team, aren't we? Or if we're under the banner of Jesus Christ, we are literally all on the same team. And I love this passage in Romans 15, verse 5, hit me as a, a ton of bricks today. And it says, the, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, those boys didn't know it, but they were a testimony to me that day. Because Caden doesn't know anything about football, but you would never know that he hadn't been playing with that team for the last three years because those guys absolutely loved him. And when he came off the field, they gave him encouragement. And they said, it's not always going to be easy. There's going to be guys that are bigger than you, but this is how you get through that. May the God of endurance and encouragement comfort you. When I come off the field and toward the sideline, I should have a team surrounding me. I should have somebody hitting my helmet. Now, this is metaphorical at this point, right? I'm not literally wearing a helmet. But in this journey called life, when we come off the field and we come to the sideline, we should have a group of believers surrounding us, hitting our helmet, smacking our pads and saying, man, you got this. Hey, are you having a rough time? Here's how you get through it. Here's how I got through it. We don't know what we don't know. We need some encouragement. I, I, we had something happen yesterday that was kind of a memory overlay for us. Something as simple as kayaks on the top of Chewy, that's the Honda Pilot, and the last two times we tried it, it was ridiculous, and they were falling all over the place, and it was very stressful for me. And so we tried it again one more time. And Marie even said later, if it didn't work this time, I was going to leave them on the side of the road because <laughs> it's not worth it. 
And I tell you that short little story to say this. Sometimes all you need is a win, right? As believers, as Christians in this game of life, all you need is a win. All you need is a good tackle. All you need is a nice run. All you need is somebody on the sidelines saying, look, you got this. And here's the other thing. Caden says, Dad, I keep my helmet on all the time. And I said, is that like a rule? Do you have to keep it on? He said, well, if I get tired, I'll take it off. But typically, I keep it on. I want to be ready to get into the game. (laughs) Do you want to be ready to get in the game? Are you ready to get in the game? Do you need to surround people with encouragement and endurance, tales of endurance today? Do you need to be surrounded by encouragement and tales of endurance today? Are you at your end? And all you need is a win. I am praying for you today that this group of believers, this team united under the banner of Christ, will reach out to you and say, you got this. You'll get through it. This is how I did it. May we be a people of encouragement, enduring in this game called life. Will you pray with me? Father God. Lord, are we broken? Are we bruised? Are we hurting? We, we don't know what we don't know, Lord. And maybe, maybe we're a new Christian. Maybe we're still trying to figure this out, Lord. And maybe there's a seasoned Christian standing right next to us. And instead of saying, no, you don't do it that way. No, you're supposed to read this first. Maybe instead they say, hey, I see you. I see you trying. I see you learning. I see you growing. Lord, may we understand that it doesn't matter what church we go to, Lord. If we're under the banner of Jesus Christ, we're all on the same team. Lord, there's no competition for favorites, for better than. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. And we are all children of God. Sons and daughters of the Most High. May we come to the altar knowing that you have given your all for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
In a 2017 article in the New York Post, we were introduced to Harriet Rose Katz, K-A-T-Z. She is a event planner from the Upper East Side of New York. And the article told about her going and commissioning and paying $4,000 for a set of jewelry. A 32-inch Pave link necklace matching earrings and bracelet. And she paid $4,000 for them. But here's the problem. They're not diamonds. They're cubic zirconia. They're not worth very much. And what is even weirder is she owns that exact set of jewelry in diamonds that are worth over $300,000. She paid for a knockoff of her own jewelry. She paid four grand for a knockoff of her own jewelry. And... Evidently, this has become quite the thing with the New York elites. They buy a big fancy piece of jewelry, and then they put it in a box, and they go buy a knockoff of it, and they wear the knockoff. A place called Murray's Jewelries, and a lady named Jennifer there is the premier of the one that does this. In fact, she says that Harry Winston, Gaff, and other huge houses usually call us at first, right after a big sale, hey, here's something that has happened. You might be getting this customer very soon. And the article, it quotes this woman right here, Harriet, and she says, I love every minute I wear my jewelry. But some people think everything I wear is real. What a joke. So she wears fake because the real is too valuable? She would rather wear fake than see real? I wonder if this mindset has crept into our Christianity. You see, when Jesus was leaving this earth, his last words in Matthew chapter 28, he said, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. You teach them everything I've taught you to obey the commands I have given you. Now, that is a very clear set of orders from our commander in chief, correct? We are to go make disciples. But somewhere in the world, we shifted that, and we asked people to make a decision. And I wonder if we've missed the order. I wonder if Jesus is even interested in decisions because he told us to make disciples. Now, if Jesus is really Lord... If he's really Lord of our life, then his commission, his great commission, is non-negotiable. Is that, would we agree to that? If, if he said that and he challenged us to do that, it's not negotiable. Do you realize he never asked anyone to be a Christian? In fact, that word's only used three times in Scripture and never once by Jesus. He asked people to follow him, to do what he did, to think like he did. And I'm afraid the word Christian and the word church, maybe they don't mean as much as they used to. Now, please hear me. My purpose is not to make fun of or slam the church or Christians or Central Christian Church. Not in any way. I believe in all of those things. But the word Christian used to imply a total surrender. A complete abandonment to what God says. I'm doing what He says. And sadly, the statistics now tell us it really just means a casual connection to a building. And where I get that is from a study that uh, the Pew Research Center did in 2020. And the, in 2020, they discovered, they surveyed all of America, 91% of Americans claim belief in God. 91% of Americans. Yet only 63% claim to be Christian. And that number had fallen from 75% in 2010. So it's down 12% in one decade. But here's the kicker. 91% claim belief in God 31% attend a church more than two times a month. The statistics would tell us then that that doesn't suggest that I have to radically change anything 
It just says, if I'm, a, you know, I'm accustomed to it, when I get around to it, if I've got the time. Do you see what I'm saying? And we've heard stories from Open Doors and different websites that deal with the persecuted church worldwide about what it really means in, in Africa, in the Somali tribes, if you choose to follow Jesus, in the Limba tribes in Zimbabwe, if you choose and publicly state, I am a believer in Jesus, not only is death a possibility, it's a probability. You've basically signed your own death certificate. And it makes me wonder, have we carried a fake Christianity to our culture and kept the real one locked up? We're starting a new series today called Authentic, of undisputed origin, genuine. And our question for this, is our Christianity authentic? And we're going to spend the next four to six weeks, you ready for this, in one chapter of the Bible. Not one book of the Bible, one chapter of one book of the Bible in Romans chapter 12. If you'd start joining me there, there are just 21 verses, but this is powerful. Paul writes this incredible treatise, the book of Romans, to young Christians that are in Rome. These are people that have come out of the Jewish background, come out of a Gentile background, and they've come together in a situation to, to love on God. But they're, they're in a very hostile environment. The Roman government doesn't like them. And it's a good possibility that Paul never even met any of these people. He writes the letter of Romans to get them to understand the gospel. But he doesn't want them to just be aware of the good news of Jesus. He wants them to live it. He wants them to love it. He wants it to permeate all of their life. Now, in the book of Romans, the first seven chapters, he discusses in a a beautiful way the truth of the gospel. That salvation is from Christ and Christ alone. It is open to everyone. It is not by how good you are and how many works you've done. He even says that sin is still a battle. Remember in Romans 7 where he says, all the things I want to do, I, I, I don't do. But all the things I don't want to do, I end up doing those things. He's saying, I still battle this too. And then in chapter 8 through 11, he starts talking about life in the Spirit and what it means to walk in the Spirit, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that salvation is for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then in chapter 12, chapter 12 becomes the hinge pin that this whole treatise hangs on. He shifts it from a doctrinal discussion to a practical instruction. And we're going to start in Romans chapter 12 and just look at verse 1 today. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Now, friends, if our purpose is to make disciples that we just talked about just a minute ago, if that's our purpose, what would motivate us to do that? What would motivate us to make disciples? I suggest to you it's exactly what it says in the NIV in verse 1, in view of God's mercy, in view of what he has done. Paul is telling them that God loves you and nothing can take that away. Not your behavior, not your uh, past, not your lineage. Nothing can take that away. He's trying to build confidence in their faith. And in so doing, he's trying to build our confidence in our faith. Here's the problem. We know us. True? You know yourself. You know what you're capable of. True? Look, I, I lost a lot of eyes right then. Everybody went... Oh, man, I hope he's not talking to me. Uh, We all know what we're capable of and what we've done. And we look at this and we say, well, if people did to me what I've done to God, well, I would cut those people out of my life. True? Doesn't that make sense? It's, It's called the humanization of God. Another big theological term is the transmogrification. 
It is the ch- where we take something beautiful and we alter it and and change it in such a way that it makes it almost cartoonish. What I mean by that is we put on God emotions that we would put on each other. How people have bailed on me and I've bailed on God. Well, I mean, he cut me out of my life. And that's hard. But you see, it causes us to wonder how and why God loves us. Is God's love for us based on our performance? And the answer is no. He loved us before we ever existed. True? He loved us long before we were a gleam in our parents' eye. He loved us. And it's not based on our character. It's based on His character. But some of us, some Christians, walk in faith in fear. They go to church and they live in faith because I'm afraid of the bad place. I don't want to go to the bad place. Uh, I'm afraid of what might happen to me. You see, if fear is our motivation for serving, it's it's not going to work out. Fear is not a great motivator. It'll work for a little while, but after a while, it will run out of its power. You see, our motivation to serve will diminish over time. It will run out of energy. I'll tell you a couple other things. If fear is why we're serving God, if you're afraid of hell or you're afraid of what your parents might think, your motivation's going to wear out. Repentance won't mean that much to you. Here, let me see if I can explain it to you. Repentance won't mean much because you know that God forgives up to a point. There's a line. Surely there's a line somewhere out there that God won't forgive me. So, you know, I'm okay up until this point, but once I step over that line, it's too far. You see, it'll change our idea of repentance, and I'll tell you what, it'll change our idea of suffering. When bad things happen to us, then we'll immediately think, oh, well, I guess I went over that line. God hates me now. You see, if fear is why we're going to church or why we're doing anything good, it's going to wear us out. And it's not going to do all that it needs to. I shared with our college students this past Tuesday a story about Juan Carlos Ortiz. Juan Carlos Ortiz was a uh, preacher and evangelist from Argentina. Sadly, he passed away at the age of 87 this past December. And I've read some of his uh, his works, and and one story that he told stuck with me. He's Argentinian, and he was meeting with and visiting with an Argentinian trapeze artist. How many of you have seen like Cirque du Soleil and something like that? You know, and you've seen them, and they do the wild, crazy flips, and and they got that giant net underneath them. You re- you remember the net? And he asked Juan Carlos Ortiz asked this trapeze artist. He says. How do you do what you do? And he said, it's because of that safety net. You see, imagine there is no net there. If there is no net there, we will be more likely to fall and miss. Consequently, we won't try some of the... I'm not going to go for a double because it could be the last thing I ever did. You know what I mean? I'm not going to try for anything, but because the net is there, we dare to attempt some things. We try harder and bigger things because the net is there. Juan Carlos Ortiz makes the spiritual application almost immediately. He says, you see, we have a safety net in our confidence in God. But do we dare to live it? Do we dare to obey? Do we dare to truly surrender? I'm going to give it all to God, not just parts of me. You hear what I'm saying? Because sometimes we've done that. We've invited him into our house and God, you know, Jesus, you can live in my house, but you know, stay out of that room. That room's mine. Okay. You can have all of this area out here. Do we dare to, to truly live obediently? You have control of my finances. You have control of my relationships. You have control of my free time. Do we dare to be obedient? Or do we just live in fear? You see, Paul is telling these young Christians, he says, in view of all that God has done, 
Do we view God's mercies? And that is, that is present tense. Scripture tells us that His mercies are new every morning. His new, they're new every morning. So they're present tense. I challenged you before. Have you ever taken a yellow notepad and started listing His mercies to you? Listing ways He has blessed you. And I'm not talking about life and air and, you know, I, I mean really specifically. Have you listed the ways that He has blessed you? That His mercy has, shown, has been shown in your life? In the New Testament, there are 155 references to the grace of God, the mercy of God. 130 of those are from the pen of Paul. Paul, that was Saul. Saul that killed Christians. Saul that did everything to harm God. This is a guy that understood what mercy looked like. This is a guy that understood what grace looked like. And he's challenging these young Christians. Hey, if your situation isn't right, don't look at the situation. Look at what God has done. Hey, if your country isn't right... You're there in Rome and everybody's oppressing you and nobody's listening to you. If your country isn't right, don't look at the country. Look at what God has done. If your situation is you don't know where you fit in, you, how, do I, how am I even a part of the kingdom? What would he do with me? Look at what God has done and is doing in view of God's mercy. You see, that motivation, that will change everything. Now listen to me. If, as we started, that disciples are the goal. No, I'd say yes, we already talked about it. If disciples are the goal and mercy is seen, then action is natural. It is natural to want to serve God. And I think we miss this because... How many of you have heard stuff like, well, I don't want to go to church. They always want something from me. They always want my money. They always want me to serve. They always want working kids on. They, want me, they always want me to do something, right? And the answer to that is no and yes, all at the same time. Because no, action is not a requirement. It's a response. It's a I am so overwhelmed by what has, God has done for me. In view of what God has done, I can't wait to do something. Our Christian walk has never been show up and sit here for an hour and a half and go on about our life. It is always meant to be active. And authentic Christ followers act. It's a response to His great mercy. It's, it's no longer about what I want. It's about what is going to make more disciples. Hear what I'm saying? If that is our goal, and we see the mercy, then, well, I like worship a certain way, and I like preaching a certain way, well, but I'm not about me. I want, what, is, what, are, what can we do that's going to make more disciples? Hear what I'm saying? And when we talk about AMP or Spectrum or Bacon Brothers or Soup and Soul or Ladies Class or Connect or any of these other activities that we've got going on, we're not doing that to, to disrupt your week. We're trying to enhance your week. He says, in view of what God has done, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. A lot of people have trouble with this word surrender. It has the connotation in our world of lost. Uh, all right, I'm waving the red, the yellow, the white flag, whatever color flag I'm waving. I, I wave the white flag, I quit. You won, I lost. I'm a loser. Friends, that is a worldly view of a godly word. A godly word like surrender. And if we don't get this, I want you to hear this really close. If we do not understand this word surrender, I believe we are destined to be hypocritical Christians. And you may not like me saying that, okay, but hear this. If we do not understand surrender in its biblical sense, we're destined to be hypocrites. And how many of us like hypocrites? No. We, how many of you like it when you have a friend that's fake? No, we don't like that. But we're destined to be that way if we don't understand how real surrender is. 
Paul is challenging these young believers to be authentic. It's not a loser. It's that God wants all of you. This was a game changer in my faith walk. When I understood this phrase, God wants the same position in my heart that he has in the universe. You hear that? Because I gave him part of the house, not all of the house. I gave him little bits of it. He wants authority over our lives. Not to limit us, but to expand us. He has the best in mind for us if we surrender. But too often, we focus on that word surrender on what we give up, not what we get. Religion's always been a bunch of rules. Do this, don't do that, don't step outside those lines, don't wear that kind of clothes. We forget that He has beautiful plans for us. Do we trust that? Do we believe He really has great plans for us? That verse that, that we read earlier, Romans eight thirty two. listen to that one. Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? And if you look at that verse real closely at the beginning of it, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? My nephew translates that, If God is for us, who cares who's against us? I, I have the great God on my side. Now, these are young believers that are pressured by the government, and they're outcasts by, from their own people. The Jews that came to choose to follow Jesus, they came and they, man, we love Jesus. Well, the Jewish synagogues didn't want them back. Hey, man, you bailed on us. You're out. Okay? The Gentiles, and remember, there's just Jew and Gentile. There's Jew and everybody else is a Gentile. Anything else, there's only two, right? The Gentiles that have left their Gentile multiple gods and said, Jesus is the one true God I want to serve, then the Gentiles don't want them back. They're like, you think you're better than me? And But the really uh, powerful thing is that authentic Christ followers figure out that victory doesn't come from me accomplishing, it comes from me surrendering to Him. That that is the power of freedom. It was an autumn night in New York in November 2004. It was a Friday night, there was some light freezing rain, a lot of tired drivers, and four teenagers were out being delinquents. They had broken into cars, stole a little silver Nissan, went joyriding. They found a credit card in the car. So they went to a video store, ran up $400 worth of charges in uh, DVDs and video games. And then another security camera caught them at a grocery store. They were buying some things and stealing some things, but one of the things they bought was a 20-pound turkey. Now remember that. That's going to be important. Later on in the evening, they're out joyriding, being stupid, and their silver na- Nissan, they're ra- kind of racing all over these wet roads. It, it is coming up against or coming up in, uh, in the vicinity of a blue Hyundai driven by Victoria Rivolo. Victoria had been at her niece's recital that Friday evening. They had gone out to eat afterwards and were celebrating with family. It was about midnight. She was tired and she was going home. And she never saw the bulky projectile take flight. What those boys had done for grins is they had taken that 20-pound turkey and they had thrown it out the window. But as it did, it went right smashing through the windshield of Victoria Rivolo's Hyundai. It bent the steering wheel. It broke 14 bones in her face. I googled it this week. You know how many bones there are in the face? 14. It broke every single bone in her face. They rushed her to the hospital. She spent eight hours in surgery. That first night was in the hospital for three straight weeks. Over the next nine months would have eight more surgeries. When they told her all of what had happened, she remembered none of it. She didn't remember the car. She didn't remember the turkey. She didn't remember any of it. But the media, they, they got wind of this, and they had a much more vigorous response. They were angry. They were vicious. They wanted blood. 
One of the perpetrators, they caught all four of the perpetrators, but three of them were under age. One was 18. His name was Ryan Cushing, and he was going to take the bulk of everything. They caught him. They arrested him, threw him in jail. Media wanted everything. They wanted this guy. Let's throw turkeys at him. Let's, let's beat this kid. Let's do all this kind of stuff. He was in jail all this time. And in August the next year, nine months later, August 15, 2005, Victoria met Ryan face to repaired face in a courtroom for the first time she stood in the courtroom as the judge got up and read all the charges and then read that he had signed a plea deal to a lesser charge and here's what he was given time served five years probation a fine and some community service And people were furious. When did we become so soft on crime? When did, why don't we care anymore? And who is responsible for such a ridiculous plea bargain? You want to know who's responsible? Victoria Rivolo, the victim, had gone to the court and requested the lightest sentence possible. And the first time she met Ryan Cushing, she still had bandages all over her face, titanium bolts in her face. And the attorney led Cushing, this super tough macho kid, that was all gone. He was openly weeping, led him up to her, and she put her arms around him, comforted him, held him tight, stroked his hair, and said these words, I forgive you, Ryan. I want you... I want your life to be the best it can be. It takes quite an event to bring tears to the eyes of a New York attorney or judge. But there were tears that day in the courtroom. New York Times had a headline that week that said, they called it a moment of grace. What would cause such an incredible response to such a vicious, horrible crime. Let me tell you what would, what, what would cause that. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Victoria Rivola was an authentic Christ follower. But here's the kicker. I don't have a clue where she went to church. I don't have I don't have any idea if they were a contemporary or if they had a traditional service. I don't know if they used the King James or the New Living Translation. I don't have a clue what version they used. I don't even know if they had a cute little coffee bar in the back or if they were one of those no drinks allowed churches. You know what I mean? I have no idea. But what I do see is someone that is changed by the grace of God. Because mercy is a tangible expression of God to us. And our mercy to the world is a tangible expression of how God is changing us. Now stick with me for this just one more second. The purpose of this authentic series is to remind us of our purpose. Our purpose is to make disciples. Because we have been changed. But here's what I want to challenge you to do. And I'm going to try to make this challenge every week while we do this. I want you to read Romans chapter 12. I want you to read it 12 times this week. That's right, 12 times. That's twice a day and one Sabbath's day. All right? You get a day off. But I want you to read it in a lot of different versions. From the message, that intro that Franklin made, that's our own version app using the message shameless plug right there I listened to it this week in the New Living Translation it takes 3 minutes and 13 seconds to listen to chapter 12 I want you to listen to it I want you to read it I want you to soak in this chapter and then I want you to ask yourself am I authentic is my faith real does anybody even know I'm a Christian because Friends, it's time for us to no longer wear fake jewelry. You know what I mean? It's time for us to be real. It's time for us to take a real faith and show it to our community. Would you pray with me? 
Father God, we are overwhelmed at your mercy. And way too many times we haven't been. Way too many times we have tried to do things our way. And I pray that today that you have your way with us. That we surrender everything to you. Father, that you are in control of every part of our life. From our money to our relationships to our kids to our schedules. You have authority for us to be real, authentic believers. May we show mercy to our community because you have shown mercy to us. Fill us like a rushing wind. Your power in us that we might show you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.